Before we dismiss to Kids Church, I want us to do something. So I know you guys are primed and ready to send them out, but uh, I want us to pray for our children who are going to kids camp tomorrow, and some of them um, would be going to kids church, and so we want to pray over them. And so uh, let's just do that. Let's pray that this week would be a revolutionary week in their life, um, that the gospel is just declared and in their service time, through their small group time, through the games, everything that they'll do at kids camp, that the, the, the gospel would be made clear and that the Holy Spirit would have the freedom to move in their hearts and draw them to faith in Jesus. My prayer this morning in my devotion time was for our kids and just asking that the Lord would do just that. This would be a, a week where we see kids professing faith in Jesus, coming back and follow through in believers' baptism as we've just witnessed this morning with Kyle. And so uh, join me for prayer and let's just ask God's blessing and protection over this week. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for the kids, the children in our church. Thank you for those who serve them and work with them week in and week out. We thank you for what you're doing in their lives. We have seen uh, a number of them come to faith in Jesus over the last couple years. We've seen them follow the Lord in baptism. We know that there are others that are understanding the gospel that are what we would consider right there on the edge of just professing faith in Jesus. And so I pray that this week would be a revolutionary week in the lives of our children who are going to camp, all ten of them. Lord, that you would bless them, that you would watch over and, and protect them in every way. But more than anything, we ask that you would just use this week to bring life to them, spiritual life, eternal life into them. Father, I pray for their parents who will be back home and uh, I'm sure uh, concerned, but also hopeful of all that you're going to do. I pray you bless each home, bless each family, and, and again, use this week in a monumental way. Watch over them as they travel, and we just entrust them to you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're going to dismiss our kiddos to kids camp. Or kids camp. Kids church. We'll send them to camp tomorrow. <clears throat> so as they're making their way out, I want to invite you to take your Bible and find your place in 2 Timothy chapter 2. And um, my mic is not working with me this morning. I had to throw it on. So bear with me as I adjust it probably throughout the message here. All right, if you found your place in 2 Timothy chapter 2, we're going to continue working verse by verse through this, this book, uh, working through it this morning, and we're going to talk uh, this morning about the endurance of a faithful teacher. I, I need some help from you this morning. I'm looking for a new church. <laughs> uh, I figured I'd hear some hallelujah. I'm kidding. No, uh, think about this in the context of, of searching for a new church home. Uh, when a person is, is hunting for a church, they're looking for a church that's going to meet their greatest needs, right? They're looking for a church that's going to minister to their family. They're going to look for a, a church family that's going to help them, come alongside them so that they can live a great life, a godly life. And so what sort of, sort of advice would you give such a person, a family? What, what kind of advice would you give to a person who's looking for a new church home? I don't know if you realize it, but this is where a lot of Christians are, a lot of uh, churchgoers are at this summer. Summer seems to be a transition time in a lot of churches where people are deciding to, uh, to, to move on to the next thing. A lot of that has to do with church years and, and the way they fall. And so there are a lot of Christians today looking for a new church home as they go through this summer. How would you advise them? What would you tell them to look for? What would you tell them that they need to, to be on the, the, the prowl for? What are the important aspects of a church? What are those selling points, if you will? 
Is it children's ministry? Is it worship style or preference there? Is it the service times and location? Or, or is it something else? The way that you answer that question really shows your understanding for the priorities of the church. They reveal what you believe to be the priorities, but they may or may not align with the Bible's priorities for the church. And so as we've been working through this letter that Paul wrote to Timothy here in this second letter, we've seen here that, that Paul's writing to this pastor of the church at Ephesus, and he's laying out the priorities that ought to be present within the New Testament church. I mean, when you look at what he wrote and you think about what he could have wrote, I mean, it could have been vastly different. He could have wrote about a number of different issues or topics. But this is what we see Paul focusing on in this letter. He's focusing on doctrine. He's focusing on evangelism. He's focusing on character. He talks about the character of the, the shepherds, the, the teachers, the evangelism. He's talking about proclamation. Those are the four things that, that he prioritizes in this letter to Timothy for the church. Think about this. All of these areas, all of these issues require long-term devotion. They're not an overnight sensation. Uh, we've been looking at this study now for a number of weeks, and what we're seeing here is that the, the Christian life, at Christian ministry, they're a daily grind. You've got to get up and, and do it all over again. You've got to work toward it. It's, it's hard, laborious work. And you cannot and you should not expect to have a great Christian life or have a successful Christian ministry, a, a, an effective church, if you don't plan for it, if you don't work toward a great life and a great ministry. This reality has largely been the thesis of what Paul's been laying out to Timothy, and it's, it, it was the priority for Timothy as a pastor. It's the priority for us in leadership in our church, and I would say it's this way. It's the priority. It ought to be the priority of all of us who are followers of Jesus, all of us who are members of Red Lane. And so it requires meticulous endurance because everything, as I said a couple weeks ago, is working against us in the Christian life. So it's true of pastors. It's true of the small group leaders. It's true of church members in general. There are times when the distraction and the discouragement comes from outside the church, but unfortunately, it comes from within all too often. As members begin to formulate their own ideas, their own agendas, their own priorities for what they believe the ministry should be, what they believe the pastors should be. And so when we think about it, our church needs to understand this. We need to understand this. We cannot and we should not form our opinions or, or form our, our understanding of the church around our opinions or around our desires or around our preferences, but rather we have to, we must form everything we understand about the church around what the Scripture lays out for us. And so in here in the second half of 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul's describing the priority of pastors enduring as a faithful teacher. A couple weeks ago we saw where he, he talks about the faithful and enduring witness of the pastors. And so now we're going to take a step further and look at it from the context of the teachers. And so if you will, let's read 14 through verse 26. Verse 14, Paul says, Remind them of these things and charge them before God, not to quarrel about words which does no good but only ruins the character or the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hermanius, Hymenius, and Philetus. Philetus, well, that's a fun name to say. Who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. 
But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil. Correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. A couple weeks ago when we were walking through the first half of this chapter, we saw there that Paul presented four references to bearing witness of the gospel He also presented four specific references to suffering and endurance. And we talked about how if we're going to be a witness for Christ, we need to expect suffering and expect to have to endure through that suffering. He reminded Timothy that the mission of his life, and consequently the mission of Timothy's life, was to testify to the gospel. It was to be a witness of the life-transforming power of Jesus Christ. And that's true of you and I. That's what we're to be. When we're in the, the places where we work, where we're in the places where we play, where we're in the places where we shop, and wherever we find ourselves, we are a witness for the gospel. Here in this text that we just read, Paul's introducing three more me- metaphors. He, earlier he talked about the athlete and the, and the soldier and the farmer. Now he's going to use three more metaphors to describe the nature of ministry We see here that he speaks of the unashamed workman. He speaks of the clean vessel. And then he speaks of the Lord's servant. In doing so, he's touching on the act of teaching. He's speaking of the character of teaching and the danger of false teaching. I'm going to take all of that and wrap it up and share with you what it looks like to endure as a faithful teacher. And so, if you will, just look there in verse 14. Look how he begins this passage. He says, remind them of these things. This is the charge he gives to Timothy. He says, remind them of these things. The phrase, these things, occurs occurs several times throughout these two epistles, these two letters written to Timothy. Now, obviously, it, it most specifically refers to exactly what precedes this passage. He's saying, remind them of these things, that they're to be a witness, that they're to endure in their witness for Christ. But also, it speaks to the, the, the body of all of Paul's teaching to Timothy. In both cases, Timothy is not free to make up his content. He's not free to say, "Uh, you guys who are supposed to be witnesses, here's how you may want to do it. Here's some ideas, but just go and do what you want to do. No, he's instructed to tell them exactly what Paul has instructed and built into his life. Uh, For the larger content of Paul's instruction to Timothy and to the church at large, they're not free to waver from that. You see, Jesus gave it to Paul, and Paul instilled it and passed it on to Timothy, and Timothy is in turn to pass it on to the elders and to the church that he pastors. So the responsibility of a faithful teacher is always to preach and to teach these things, not our things. In other words, the faithful teacher, the faithful preacher is there to preach and to teach the sound doctrine of the Word of God. It's not to give opinions about what they believe and what they think. Teachers are commissioned with the task of reminding people over and over again of what God's Word says. And this task requires faithful 
endurance. Have you ever wondered about that? Why is it that when we come to church that we always open the Bible? Ever thought about that? Maybe you just never think of those questions, but I bet children have those thoughts. Why do we always open that Bible? Well, especially if it's in a, in a version that doesn't really sound like the way we speak today. Perhaps if you have the King James Version. And so it sounds different from the pulpit than, than in normal day life. And so they may wonder, why is he reading Shakespeare? Why is he reading out of the Bible? What's so important about the Bible? Why do we read and preach and teach the Bible? I want you to think about that for a second. Is it really important for the church and for the Christian to focus their lives, to build their lives, to ground their lives in the Word of God? Paul answers that question very vividly in Romans 10, 17, where it says, Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word or through the Word of Christ. We see all throughout the Word of God how the Bible would answer this question in example after example after example. We're left with this understanding that if we're going to be followers of God, redeemed followers of God, there's no other source that we can draw strength and truth from other than what God's voice has spoken. And so this morning, I'm not reading out of some other religious book. I'm not reading out of pop psychology. I'm not teaching you out of some sort of man-made theology. I'm teaching you the very words of God because they're the only words that have life. Amen? The clear answer is that spiritual life, spiritual strength, they're only transmuted, transmitted through the faithful preaching and teaching of God's word. Think about this. There's no salvation apart from the proclamation of the gospel. None of us who know Jesus this morning came to faith in Jesus because we just woke up one day and thought, you know what, I'm going to get a better life. I'm going to try this Jesus. No, we heard the gospel. It revealed sin to us, and we placed our faith in Jesus. Likewise, as a Christian, there's no sanctification without or apart from the declaration of the Word of God. The Word of God speaks to us and and reveals to us our sinfulness. It draws us into a greater and more tightly knit relationship with Jesus where we don't want to hold on to sin anymore. We want to cling to Jesus and we want to forsake everything else. For that reason, the teacher, the preacher is wise to consume his life with nothing other than the faithful study of the Bible in preparation to teach. You remember in Acts chapter 6, I'm going to get this mic fixed in a minute. It's driving me nuts. Um, I was back there trying to hustle and get everything put on in the microphone. I hadn't even got it open, and I was like, look. And I was like, you're on the last song, so I just threw it on, and so it's not on properly, but we'll, we'll make do. Um, we'll make do. But think about this. Acts chapter 6, you've got an issue going on in the church. It's really a, a, a pivotal moment in the life of this early church. And, and there's a segment of, of believers, a segment of the church that began to feel like their needs weren't being met. And in the midst of that crisis... The apostles speak, and they say, we don't have, and, and you get us, I'm going to put this in the James Taylor version, we don't have time to wait tables. That's not in our calling. That's not in what God's called us to do and the duty he's entrusted us with. And so you need to go and find seven faithful, godly brothers and give that task to them. We're going to devote ourselves to the prayer to God and to the proclamation of the Word of God. We're going to preach the gospel and we're going to pray. And so that was the priorities of those pastors, of those apostles of the early church. And so they needed to spend time with the Lord in the study on their knees so that they could be ready to say, thus saith the Lord. And so with that understanding, I love what Donald Barnhouse says. He says, if I knew the Lord was coming in three years, I would spend two years studying and one year preaching. Rightly handling the word of truth. You say, 
what's the big deal about studying? What's the big deal about getting alone with the Lord and, and, and spending time there in the study? It's a big deal because we want to rightly handle the Word of God. You see, the Bible is the truth as it reveals to us both the reality of God as well as our own sinful situation. And John Calvin said of it, Scripture is like a pair of spectacles which dispels the darkness and gives us a clear view of God. The only way that we can see who God is and see who we really are is through the lens of Scripture. And so the preacher is wise to spend time in the study so that he can prepare his heart and his mind to deliver the word of God so that the people can see clearly. The faithful teacher rightly handles the truth. This is true of the preacher. It's true of the small group leader. Anyone who's teaching the word of God, we must rightly handle the truth. We also learn that the faithful teacher who rightly handles the truth is a worker. Look what he says here, verse 15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed. It's very similar to the picture that we see in verse 6 of the hardworking farmer. The preacher-teacher is a hardworking individual. Think about what teaching is. It's preaching is. It's an arduous and lengthy process. The teacher doesn't just stand up here and, and declare, thus saith the Lord. And I don't just get up here and speak extemporaneously. Now, there are some segments of Christendom that believe that it, Holy Spirit-led preaching is something that you just get up there on the cuff and preach. I would say that's probably not necessarily Holy Spirit-led preaching. That just may be somebody's good at and gifted and just can convey something. But when we get with the Lord and we get with His Word and God speaks into our hearts so that we can not only be transformed of it ourselves, but then convey it to those who need to hear it. That's where the power resides. And so the pictures of a preacher who has first spent quality time with the Lord in devotion, spirit-filled teaching, then is an overflow of his or walk with Jesus. It's also a picture of one who's labored hard in the study. John Henry Jowett once said this about preaching. He says, preaching that costs nothing accomplishes nothing. If the study is a lounge, the pulpit will be an impertinence, a dishonor. So there's no room for slackers. There's no room for shoddy work in the ministry, especially when it comes to preaching and teaching. Someone once said, holy shoddy is still shoddy. You know what shoddy work is, right? Half-hearted. No real zeal and just kind of going through the motions, just trying to check it off your list. But really, your heart's not in it. That should never be true of ministry. It should never really be true of anything in our lives. Because what does the Bible tell us? Do all that we do to the glory of God. Do it in the name of the Lord Jesus. We're to work as unto God. So the faithful teacher focuses on God rather than others also. He seeks approval only from the Lord. He says that he may not be ashamed. See, clarity and relevance are important to the teacher, but they don't drive the content of the message. God-centered teachers strive to be faithful. They don't strive to be flashy or famous. Sometimes fame comes and God gives that, but that should never be the focus for the preacher. Instead, the preacher needs to be faithful to the Word of God, preaching and teaching the unadulterated Word of God in spite of any critic. So the aim is to be unashamed. Faithful teacher then is accurate in his teaching. You see here in verse, uh, verse 14, rightly handling. This tr term is translated from the Greek 
word orthotomeo. It's a, a word that simply means to guide along to a straight path or to cut straight. Uh, you might recognize ortho, a word that we are a prefix that we get a lot of, uh, of our English words from, words such as orthodontist or orthopedic or orthodoxy. And so you understand what those terms are. An orthodontist is the one who straightens teeth. An orthopedic is the one who straightens bones. The orthodoxy is the, is the clear teaching that aligns itself with the, with the teaching of the Word of God and the historic Christian faith. And so the idea here is that the faithful teacher carefully and clearly teaches the Word of God so as to help hearers stay on the path of life. Our orthodoxy creates a healthy orthopraxy. In other words, straight teaching leads to straight living. If we're going to endure as a faithful teacher, we have to focus on rightly handling the truth. There's a second instruction, and that is avoid destructive controversies. Verse 16, he says, avoid irreverent babble. It will only lead people into more and more ungodliness. So what are these controversies. What is this irreverent battle? Really, it happens in and out of the pulpit. There's always the temptation to become engaged in topics that are not important. They're they're not there. They do nothing for the advancement of the gospel. do nothing for the edification of the church. They're simply to puff yourselves up or to engage in some sort of controversy. And so here, Paul's encouraging the preacher to not engage in that. And yet, there's a draw constantly on the preacher and the teacher to engage in those sort of things. You probably heard it this way. Maybe you're guilty of this before. You come and you say, preacher, I really wish you would say something or teach something or preach something more relevant. Right? We want something relevant. We want seven, seven uh, tips for, or to uh, financial freedom. We want five things to a better marriage. We want three secrets of an emotional health. We want something that's relevant and practical. I, I would ask this question. What is more relevant and what is more practical than the Word of God? Now, there are some times when the preacher preaches and he makes no application to your personal life. That's not relevant. But when you preach the Word of God and then you bring application, how can we and how should we apply this? There's relevance in the Word of God. There's power in the Word of God, which means it's relevant to our lives. There's also the temptation for the preacher to engage in controversial and speculative conversations. I mean, in, in Timothy's context, what's going on here is, is there is a, a, a group of people who are teaching that a spiritual resurrection had taken place. They negated a physical resurrection. And so for Timothy, this was a controversy that he needed to engage because it, it denied the physical resurrection of Jesus and only proclaimed a spiritual resurrection. See, what's the big deal? Well, Paul says it's a big deal in 1 Corinthians 15. If Jesus has not been raised from the dead, we are dead ourselves, he says. Our faith is of nothing. It is vain. But there were also, I'm sure, some spiritual conversations taking place that weren't ha- worth having. So he says here, they do nothing but damage the people. They lead to more and more ungodliness. They damage their faith. They damage the practice of the believers. Today we have controversial issues that trip us up. Politics is one of those. Politics from the pulpit. Politics in our small group classes. Worship style can often be a topic that is, that is uh, damaging to the church. Eschatology, when we begin to, to, to create tribes where I believe this and you believe that and, and we can't 
realize that both of us may be wrong in that area, when we begin to, to bring tertiary issues and areas of, of belief up to pri- primary issues, we've got a serious problem in the church. They harm our gospel witness. Should we have an informed biblical opinion about these areas? Absolutely, you should have a biblically informed opinion about them. And yet you shouldn't wear those opinions on your sleeves. In other words, they shouldn't consume your conversations. Instead, your conversations should be seasoned with the gospel. They should, the gospel should consume your conversations. Let me just uh, give me an, an, an illustration of this. Let's just pull worship styles out as a way of illustrating. Uh, I'm always amazed at how often quarrels over worship style wreck churches. It's been going on for ages. It's not just a... Uh, recent phenomenon. We've always had worship styles because you know what happens with music? It changes in every generation. You go back to the 20s and 30s and 40s, you got big band. You go to the 50s, you got, uh, you got Elvis Presley and, and the beginning of rock and roll, which morphed into what we see in the 60s and the 70s. And you got to change there with country music, country western music becoming into southern rock. And you got the big hair bands in the 80s. And you got a different flair in country music there. And then you got grunge in the 90s. And, and that's just secular music. Then you come into worship style music and it changes just like that. And so it doesn't surprise me that this is an issue in the church, but it does surprise me that we allow it to wreck churches and we begin to to form tribes pitted against one another over personal preferences. The organ is set against the guitar as people choose their preference and declare it is God's preference. I actually had a man tell me one time, that the organ, that organ music, quote unquote, is this. Organ music is God's music. I was respectful because I followed First Timothy chapter two in, or Second Timothy chapter two here, where I was going to be gentle, which means I wasn't going to jump on him with the Bible and beat him over the head. But I wanted in my spirit, I thought this, uh, sir. I've read the Bible many, many times over. I've never seen an organ in the Bible. And so how could it be God's music if there's no organ in the Bible? But instead what you see here in Psalm 150 is clashing cymbals and banging drums and all kinds of other things, harps and lyres and things. But there's no organ. So how could it be God's music? The truth is it was his preference, so he declared it was God's preference. Now, I'm not here to say organ music is better than guitar music or anything. I firmly believe we should have all of them. That's what we strive for here at Red Lake. We want to incorporate all styles to reach all generations so that we can be a cross-generational church where young and old are worshiping together so that we're doing what Paul would be telling us to do, that the older disciple the younger and the younger influence and encourage the older, that we are a body of Christ, like-minded, not not gathered together on preferences and styles, but gathered around the gospel, gathered around Jesus, and allowing our differences and our diversity to bring glory to Jesus. Because there's coming a day that every tongue, tribe, people, and nation will gather around Jesus. And if you've ever been overseas, they worship different than they do here in Virginia. Wow, that's a good place to say amen, because I kind of got worked up there. Ephesians 5.19, 5.19 treats worship styles, all of them equally, and I would say encourages us to utilize all of them in our worship. So the faithful teacher endures as he avoids destructive controversies. Don't make an anthill a mountain. Number three, expect sinful opposition. Verses 17 through 21, we see this idea conveyed here. Verse 17, he talks about Hymenaeus and Philetus. 
of how they are examples of teachers who disrupted the faith of the members of the church in Ephesus. Uh, Let me just talk a little bit about who these men are. We don't know much. In fact, we know nothing about Philetus other than what we find here, that he was in cahoots with with Hymenius, Hymenius, and they were spreading a false teaching about the resurrection, declaring that it had already taken place, a spiritual resurrection. Now, Hymenius, we have also been, uh, we, we know a little bit more of him, other Really, the only thing we know is that he was mentioned in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 20. There, him and Alexander, Paul says, have been excommunicated from the church. They have been given over to Satan in, in a spiritual discipline to bring them back to the faith. What we know of them is nothing other than they were false teachers. And Paul dealt swiftly and biblically with their teaching. So the reason for their harsh and This swift discipline is due to the danger he talks about of the false teaching. He says that it's going to spread like gangrene. What's gangrene? It's a progressively and deadly disease that begins to decay from the inside out. What gangrene does to a human body, gangrene, spiritual gangrene will do it to a church. It will eat through individuals and it will eat through the body of the local church unless it's dealt with decisively. And so this dangerous and destructive force is none other than false teaching. And it is a reality that is burdensome to the church. But we're not to be overwhelmed with it. We're not to be overwhelmed with this false teaching that we may encounter from time to time. In fact, as believers, we don't need to be overwhelmed. Because what he tells us here in verse 19 is that God is in control. Verse 19, he says, God, the Lord knows whose are his. He knows those who are his. Paul here is alluding by this statement back to a very famous event in Israel's history. You probably remember the story in Numbers chapter 16. Moses and Aaron are confronted by Korah. Korah and Abiram and Dathan come and 250 other leaders come before Moses and Aaron. They begin to challenge his leadership, their leadership as priests. And, and so Moses says, come back tomorrow, gentlemen. Brothers, come back tomorrow, and the Lord will set it straight. He will declare whose are his. And so what Paul's telling Timothy here is that when you, face, when you face false teaching, don't be overwhelmed by it. Don't be overcome by it. Understand that the Lord is in control. He knows whose are his. And so endure. Faithful teachers endure as they remember that the Lord is in control. He is Lord over both the honorable and the dishonorable vessels, according to verse 20. In fact, what we see throughout Scripture is that God oftentimes uses the dishonorable, those who are not a part of the faith, to sharpen those who are honorable, the ones who are in the faith. Persecution brings spiritual blessing to the church. Church history clearly teaches us that. So the responsibility of the teachers is to encourage those in the church to continually cleanse themselves from dishonorable things. And this brings us to a fourth instruction, and that is to live godly before others. This is where the wheel meets the road. We're to live godly before others. Herman Kelly said it this way, The great teacher must not only give the best that is in his subject, but what is even more important, the best that is in himself. You see, most things in our life are caught rather than taught. They need to be uh, confirmed. They need to be uh, backed up with proclamation, with teaching, with, 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 with um, 
instruction, but really, when you really begin to learn something, something really begins to, to become who you are, you're catching it, not just teaching it. You need to see it lived out. You need application to be presented. And so the teacher influences both by word and deed. Therefore, it's imperative that the pastor teacher be a godly example for the church to follow. In many ways, they are to follow him. Like, let me think about what Paul says. Follow me as I follow Christ. That's the idea here, that we're to live godly before others so they don't just hear what we say, they see how we live. And they see how those two are coming together and congruent. Up to this point, Paul gives instructions on how to live godly, or to this point, how to live godly before others. And so let's just kind of quickly walk through what he says here. He says in verse 22, flee youthful passions. Flee youthful passions. When you hear that, what do you think of? Many times it's interpreted as sexual sin, and while obviously the Bible teaches us and instructs us to avoid such sin, uh, that's not necessarily the, the message here. It obviously applies that, but the grammar and the context here would, would not just force it into that small mold. It would lead us to, to include much more in that area. So what are youthful passions? Well, I think we see it listed out in verses 23, 24, and 25. When he talks about quarreling and, and, and unkindness and harshness and all those things. And so the youthful passions that he speaks of is the temptation to quarrel. It's to be unkind. It's to be harsh. If you're older uh, in your years and older in your faith, you can look back and say, you know what? I'm not like that anymore. I'm not as harsh. I'm not as uh, 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 difficult. I've mellowed out, right? Please shake your head and say yes. Otherwise, you're, you're harsh. Maturity, if we're walking with the Lord, does that to us, right? I, I, I don't want to say here that there aren't black and white, but not everything in this world is, is as easy as that. And when you're younger in the faith, it, it's either this or that. And so there's no, I don't want to say gray area necessarily, but we don't give leeway for that. We're dogmatic, and it's our way or the highway type of thing. And so we believe everybody should conform to how we view things in life. Well, the pastor teacher can't always be so dogmatic. Dogmatic on the areas that are most important, absolutely. Dogmatic on the gospel. There's no other way to be saved but through Christ. So what happens with young leaders is they're often impatient. They drive the sheep rather than lead the sheep. I told uh, some guys in the, in the in the ministry in our convention a few weeks ago, a month, a month or so ago, I forget which meeting it was, but we were talking about stuff, and, and I just told them, man, I, I've been doing this 20 years or so, 21 years, and, and I can look back over my tenure as, as whatever staff position I had, and even uh, several years as a senior pastor, I, I've been guilty early on driving the church rather than leading the church. There's a big difference. There's a monumental difference is when you're saying, you got to do this, we must do this, instead of being patient and, and understanding it and, and, and slow. Slow. You don't drive sheep. You lead sheep. And when you're young, you don't know the difference. So young leaders are often prone to die on hills not worth fighting. And so I've been guilty of that over the years, dying on hills that weren't worth the fight. And you lose capital, and you lose members, and you lose credibility. And, and really, when it's not an important issue, like a life or death situation, a doctrinal issue, you may not want to die on that hill. And so what he's telling Timothy here is, 
pick your battles. Be wise. Be gentle. Be kind. He says, don't, don't, don't do some of these things. Flee these youthful passions, but instead pursue righteousness, pursue faith, pursue love, pursue peace. Righteousness here speaks of the right conduct of a man who's pleasing God and is, God is back, pleasing back to him. He delights in the Lord. Faith that he references speaks of the belief and simple trust in God that characterizes his life. And so the church ought to see in the pastors, in the teachers of the church, a simple implicit and faithful trust in God. You see, when we're embarking on a new journey the Lord's leading us to do, the church needs to see faith in the one who's leading the charge. It didn't always happen in the Word of God. I'm thinking of Moses on the, on the banks of the Red Sea. I mean, he's, he's gone into Egypt, and he said, God's going to deliver you, and I'm here to do that. And they're like, please don't do anything. You're going to cause trouble. And so they went through a bunch of uh, things, plagues being poured out, and finally they believe God enough to leave, and then they get to the banks of the Red Sea, and here's Pharaoh coming again. And, and, and Moses saying, shut up, and that's a word he actually uses, I believe, in the Bible there. He says, just stop talking. Be quiet. And just watch and see what God's going to do. And, and even then, they're trembling in there. They, they want to go back to Egypt. And so they didn't see faith, or they didn't, they didn't live faith, but they saw faith in Moses. Moses believed God. And so the preachers, the teachers of the church, the leaders, leadership of the church must exemplify faith. He speaks of love. This is a love for people. Ministry, think about ministry would be a breeze if it wasn't for the people. Many times when you talk with people who are leading in the church, small group leaders, pastors, deacons, it doesn't matter. When they start really talking shop together, the the difficulties, the stress that they feel, it's there because of the people. Ministry would be easy without people, but you know what we wouldn't have? Ministry. There's a proverb. God had to use this on me many, many years ago when I was an intern in college in our student ministry. We would bust in five, six hundred middle scores every single week from the schools. And, and I ran uh, the, the whole student facility. We had a cafe with all kinds of stuff. And so, man, I'm constantly unclogging toilets. And my, me or my team is, is picking up spills and just dealing with stuff. Like you're in a stockyard. You know, there's always this refuse around. Sorry for the image, but that's literally what it was. And I just began, man, I, I began to realize I was resenting the kids that we were bringing in to minister to. God had to hit me, and I forget exactly which, which chapter and verse, but I believe it's somewhere in the neighborhood of Proverbs 14 through 16, verse 20, I believe, one of those three chapters. And it says something to this effect, that if we didn't have cattle in the stalls, we wouldn't have a ministry, Right? You're there, you're cleaning out the stalls, you may resent all of those things, but you just need to remember the fact that you have manure in front of you means you've got a cow that's worth something in your herd. And so ministry is hard, ministry is difficult, but ministry is what we've been called to, all of us, ministering to the body of Christ. And so the preacher, teacher, must learn to love the people when they live like saints and when they live like sinners. And all too often, they're living like sinners. He speaks of peace. This is an idea, the idea of harmony with the people. There's a mutual trust. There's a mutual respect. There's a mutual confidence between the pastor teachers and the congregation that we're working together. There's harmony. There's peace there. There's confidence there. And all of this, the pastor teacher 
does not neglect his duty to shepherd over the doctrine and the practice of the church. He does not neglect that. He says, be kind, be gentle, be loving, be peaceful. But that doesn't mean you're to neglect your duty to shepherd the church. Instead, when there's a need for correction, he's to bring correction. Look what he says in verse 25. Correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. And so the the pastor teacher is to do this, but he's to do it with patience. He's to do it with gentleness. He corrects error with the goal of winning a brother, not the goal of winning a debate. And anytime we as a church have to exercise spiritual discipline, church discipline, to another brother or sister, we do it with a desire, with the hope of repentance and reconciliation. It's not penal. We're not putting someone in time out. We're not putting someone in some sort of spiritual jail. We, we may have to go to the extreme like he did with Hymenaeus and Alexander and Philetus that we would actually excommunicate them. But even in that, he says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 20, that they gave them over to Satan. The purpose there, as we see in Matthew 18, is to lead them back to a place of repentance and faith. It's always seeking reconciliation, always looking for the best for the person and what's best for the church and for the gospel. So going back to that opening question, what advice would you give if someone was looking for a new church home? I believe based upon our text today, we know that we should not seek out a church that is simply flashy, or church that is famous. Not to say that those things are bad, but that's not what we're seeking. We don't pick one because it's big, and we don't pick one because it's small. I've heard people many times over the years say, I don't know if I could be in a big church. I, I just want to be in a small church where I can know everybody. Here's a problem. We're a church that runs, what, 150 or so? You only can know about 60 people. I, I'm amazed all the time how many of you don't know one another, and I'm just in some sort of state of naivety. Naivety, naivety. I'm naive. Let's say that. My archinese, my education was coming out there for a second. I, I feel at times that I'm just naive, thinking you all should know everyone because I know names and faces, and, and and it's my job to try to know everybody, even though I don't even know everybody. It's not possible to know and to be really, really, really deep in relationships with every single person. That should never be the goal. The sh- goal should be in deep relationship with Jesus and deep relationship with a few. That's why small groups are so important. And so we don't pick a church based upon size. We don't pick a church based upon uh, 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 worship style or any of those other things that I mentioned earlier. Instead, we should be in a church where the members and the attenders are regularly fed the Word of God. We should find a church, and we need to be a church where the care of our souls is a priority where we find meaningful fellowship and accountability. And that comes in the context of a small group. We should find and and strive to be a church where we can use our giftedness to serve the Lord and to serve others. You see see a person that's seeking for a church and they say, what what should I be looking for? Those are four areas right there that should be a priority. Paul's instruction here to Timothy shows us that God is more concerned about the condition of the heart than the production of the hands. He's not looking for flash. He's not looking for skill. Here's a statement really undergirds this whole message. Holiness and not skillfulness is the precondition for usefulness in the church. Holiness and not skillfulness is the precondition. God's not looking 
for you to have incredible skills. He's looking for you to have incredible holiness. He's looking for you to just surrender yourselves and say, I want to die to myself and I want to live to Christ. And when you're in that position, then he can use you. Then he can instill skillfulness. Then he can do things in your life that you never dreamed you could do. He's not looking for just a good few men. He's looking for some holy men and women. And so how are we made holy? Last week, and I think I'm going to do this every week now, moved into our time of response, talking about some good news, some bad news, and some best news. How do we become holy? We first need to know the good news. God has designed you. God designed you for himself. The Bible says in Colossians 1.16 that we've been made by God and we've been made for God. Perfectly designed to be in a perfect relationship with him. The bad news the Bible tells us is that we are all broken. Sin in our lives has created and brought brokenness. We are a mess. That brokenness has led to separation between you and I and the Lord Jesus. Sin brings the wrath of a holy God. But the Bible takes us a step further and doesn't leave us in that bad news gives us some best news. Romans 5.8 tells us that God has demonstrated his love that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. God the Son paid the penalty for our sin. The brokenness in our life can be made whole through a relationship with Jesus Christ. Many in this room have come into relationship with Jesus. Some have not. And so the first step for all of us is to put our faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior. Have you faith in to Jesus today? If you have, the, the next step for all of us is, is to put our faith or, or to demonstrate that faith through believers' baptism. And so this morning, if you've been baptized, we saw Kyle this morning be baptized, following the Lord in that step of obedience. And then the Bible would lead us to be connected to his church. That's how we could grow in our holiness, is being in that relationship, fellowship with other believers to help us grow in this walk with Jesus. And then we need to put our faith to action and serve. That's how we live out what we've been talking about this morning. Being in a relationship with Jesus, following a believer's baptism, being connected to his church, and using our giftedness to serve the Lord and to serve others. When you'll do that, you know what will happen? You'll begin to grow in your faith in ways you never dreamed imaginable. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for Jesus, and we thank you for the difference he makes in our lives. He's the only difference maker. Philosophy can't do anything. Religion can't do anything for us. Good works can't do anything for us. Only Jesus. He's the one who bridges the gap between sinful humanity and a holy God. And Father, I pray for that individual, that man, that woman, that child this morning who's never yet said yes to Jesus. I pray today would be that day. Lord, I pray this morning for those who need to be baptized. I pray this morning for those that you're leading to join our church. God, I pray that you just help us to have an open heart, an open mind, to respond to what the Spirit is leading us to do, whatever that may be. That might be getting up and going over to a brother or sister that we've, we've been mean to, we've spoken ill of, we've been harsh and unkind, and just simply saying, I've, I've wronged you, and I want to make it right. Would you forgive me? And then just name it. Lord Jesus, being right with you means that we also must be right with our brothers and sisters. So today, God, in this time of response, may our hearts be open to your Spirit's leading. May we be willing to do anything and everything you lay before us. So we pray your blessings upon this time as we respond in faith and we respond in